Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls, a podcast where we try to get to the bottom of things. And for some people, that brings on a literal meaning. Sometimes we feel like we're out of luck. But are we? Are we really at the bottom? I don't think we are. Who are the forgotten, the neglected, the people nobody wants to acknowledge or remember? Our prisons are full of these people, over two million of them. And for most of us, we've never been near, around, or inside a prison. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Nate. And we want to welcome you to Don't Feed the Trolls. A podcast where we discuss trending topics, art, and culture. Through the lens of our experiences touring the world and creating art vocationally. We hope to bring topics out of the minefield of the comments sections. And into the sphere of reasonable dialogue. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to talk to an expert on the forgotten. Chris Hoke is a friend of prisoners. He spends time with them, laughs with them, listens to them, remembers their names, and even watches them change for the better. Uh, You recently wrote a book called Wanted, A Spiritual Pursuit Through Jail Among Outlaws and Across Borders. Maybe we can talk about the book, like what inspired you to write this book? Uh, What is it about? Maybe that'll help us kind of get this conversation started. Yeah, I came to the Skagit County Jail in Northwest Washington 11 years ago. I was an overchurched kid. I think uh, I think there's millions of us out there in America who maybe no longer go to church but grew up with a lot of it. And so we're kind of our imaginations are charged with these um kind of eternal questions. <laughs> yeah. And um and whether whether folks are in church or not, whether whether they're going to the world of 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 podcasts or literature or humanitarian work or craft beer, I think there's a a larger hunger mm-hmm. in this overchurched generation that they're looking for something larger and sacramental, even if they felt like the church became too small. That's, that's me. That's everyone I know. Uh, <laughs> but I'm one of the few who still is, is into God, is into Jesus. And because the stories of Jesus growing up haunted me, um, hearing, a, even though I was sitting in these kind of very conservative hmm. uh, suburban environments that looked nothing like the stories of Jesus, I still heard the stories of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It'd be like hearing about watching Luke Skywalker uh, on screen while sitting in a very staid, you know, theater. I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. I wanted, I wanted to walk with this crazy Nazarene that raised the dead, a friend of sinners, and that um, walked along the outskirts of society and that spoke in mysterious ways that peasants understood and that slayed the religious system wide open. I loved this man. And when they asked me to raise my hand to follow him, I said, Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I love the, the darkness of how you describe it. You know, it feels, feels very dark. dark. It's very dark. I mean, the central image is, is, is human beings slaughtering and conspiring and killing hmm. a human. And, we're, and, if, and if you're in a Christian tradition that says that human being is God, we're, we're, we're given a very dark story about how God came and touched us. Hmm. And kissed us and was kind to us and healed us and we slaughtered him. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because I yesterday I was doing an interview on another podcast for my band and it was like a Christian radio podcast and I told the story about how like when I went into the Sistine Chapel and I looked at the ceiling it felt very like like the artist was just capturing all the dark parts of the Bible like on purpose you know and how that's a part of the Bible we sent we we sort of don't like to I tend to give the Bible some credibility because it includes the darkness, you know? Right. And so that's why in a way, like I was done with the church, but I was more into Jesus than ever. And I, I really wanted to follow this Jesus. And most mm-hmm. of his time was out of the temple. So that I, I think when I was 18 and 19, I understood that that would, um, that would take me away from religious spaces following Jesus. Hmm. I mean, I remember in high school that we went to Folsom prison, um, 
Really? Yeah. Uh, just one random afternoon, the the they're like, "We're going to do a sing sing at Folsom Prison." I was like, "Okay," and I was probably fifteen years old. And uh, we got in this van, we drove all the way out to Folsom Prison, and uh, we got into this like choir loft in the chapel, and we sang. And I remember this was like one of the most actual Jesus things I ever did, not knowing. And I remember in college listening to that record, Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash, and thinking of that moment and going, why did Johnny go into that prison? And why did you go into the prison? What was the, the turn for you to get inside there and want to go there? So, so what took me there was um, when I went to, to UC Berkeley for college, and it was really great to be in a very non-religious space. Um, mm. And I, I ended up writing about Jesus and connecting like sociology of poverty and Russian literature and homelessness ethnographics uh, under a, one of Kierkegaard's questions of if Jesus was here today, uh, we'd kill him all over again. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it would be just as much as a scandal and that kind of a, a Christian society or if America is now a post-Christian society, we think we're familiar, but we, we wouldn't recognize him, recognize him if he was standing in front of us. So that's Kierkegaard's question in Danish um, Christendom. Uh, and so that, that question fascinated me, and that was my thesis at, at, at Berkeley. And it was hard to find an advisor for it, but at least I convinced myself in the thesis, and I wanted to try to find places where he might, where Jesus would be. Yeah, I'm sure too many Berkeley professors weren't stoked about you doing a thesis on Jesus. <laughs> well, they, were, they were curious, because I wasn't yeah. doing him too pious. I was saying that it would it would scandalize the... Uh, you know, conservative establishment, but then I was also saying how it would scandalize the leftist establishment hmm. and um, and expose um, just a lot of rhetoric. And because he he would actually be in the in in the grime and the grit, being it, not just creating a foundation about it. So uh, it, I was trying to find these spaces, and I luckily and I wanted to study theology, but I didn't want to go to the ivory tower. But I also didn't want to just disappear in a in a place without a community of support. I mean, I'm not that hardcore. I'm a pretty uh, emotionally sensitive and, and weak guy. I need to be around a community that can help me do this. Yeah. Um, and so when I heard about this guy, Bob Ekblad, who founded a small operation called Tierra Nueva in Honduras doing agricultural uh, work and popular education and liberation theology in, in the mountains of Honduras in the 80s, and then educated in France because he didn't trust American establishments during the years of violence, which I thought was awesome. Hmm. And then he started... The next, the next chapter of Tiranueva, not in Honduras, but in Northwest Washington, working with migrant farm, undocumented migrant farm workers in the Agricultural Valley on one hand, and being a cha- Spanish language chaplain in the Skagit County Jail. And so working with two of society's um, outcast populations, undocumented foreigners. Wow. And, and laborers and with, uh, and with the condemned and with prisoners. And with, so you uh, met this guy or you just read about him? So I'd, I'd heard about him. He, okay. he was an alum of a small program at Oregon that I had also done. And so when I was really depressed in Berkeley and didn't know what I was doing with my life and was on antidepressants and thinking about suicide several times a week, um, someone told me, have, have you heard about Bob Eckblad up in Skagit County? Sounds like he'd be your dude, Chris. And so I looked into it and it sounded wonderful. It was theological studies among the very kinds of people that Jesus was hanging out with. Hmm. And so, like, this guy Bob was writing a book for seminarians called Reading the Bible with the Damned, but his mm-hmm. seminary was a county jail, and my classmates could be felons. I got up there real quick, <laughs> and, um, and, I went, and luckily, it was at a place, um, things are different now, but I, I went right in my first week there, and in uh, on, a, on a dark, rainy Thursday night, going into a small lockdown facility uh, with Bob through three or four layers of... of heavy bolted automated doors and signing in hmm. and then more heavy loud doors clang open and a, a string of men of different races and ages all wearing lousy red kind of OR scrubs and, um, and kind of crumbling orange flip-flops shuffle into the room. We sit in a circle and, and Bob it was just so kind and, and op- open and respectful with these gentlemen and read the Bible in a way that asked questions and got them drawing parallels between what was going on in the setting of Jesus's, you know, whatever uh, moment we're reading in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, 
what's going on in this society and creating, inviting questions where they're drawing parallels between that society and our own. And so I learned for night after night, not only seeing Bob be so kind and pastoral and praying with these men and seeing people be so open-hearted in the middle of talking about whether they were cooking meth or on the run from police officers or Hmm. uh, having guns under their cars. And in the same conversation, seeing men weep and seeing a respectful hand laid on someone's chest and be like, man, I have not been in a place where people are this spiritually vulnerable or this fucked up <laughs> before. <laughs> so you and, felt, and you I'm felt so fucked up. I was, I wanted to kill myself eight months ago. Yeah. I was, I, I was I just going to say that you, you, you feel depressed. You feel this, uh, over, you know, just kind of over the regular life of being in college, being in Berkeley, the Bay area, you get this depression and then you go to a jail. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But, uh, in some senses you're probably just, I don't know, grasping for something real and raw. Is that, is that part of it? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think a lot of things came together for me. There was, there was my spiritual desire to be, I still wanted to follow my hero, Jesus in a way that wasn't just going to church and being good. And what Jesus is that now, um, versus what you grew up with? Like when you say I follow Jesus, I, I just want you to define like, which Jesus is that? I, I think it's the same one I heard growing up. Hmm. Um, but not the not the interpretation. I think that's why I'm grateful for the for the primary text. For you, you can't change that. Um, and so the, the Jesus who was executed among criminals, the Jesus that was mocked for being a friend of sinners, the Jesus who raised the dead and who rolled away societal barriers to to bring the dead back into society, and to touch the lepers and to touch the people you're not supposed to touch. It's it's the same. It's that Jesus. It's the Jesus of the Gospels. And do you believe that like only that Jesus would take you to a prison? You mean as opposed to just J E S U S, which is like a sticker put on like capitalism and white yeah. bigotry? That Jesus won't take you probably to a prison because you're. I'm just more interested because we're not necessarily a religious podcast. And when you say Jesus, I just think a lot of people listening have various things come into their brain. So I'm just trying to get you to describe what that is to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about the original badass. I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Not I'm not talking about. I know that word can be thrown around in in just such a, a smarmy religious way, but it's it's very hard to just read the story of, of the original Jesus and not see who I'm talking about. Hmm. And so actually doing it, and not just making it a word about personal piety in America, but following him, which is funny, that's the word you hear, following Jesus, but actually like trying to live a life that imitates and goes to the places where this man goes will lead you to places of condemnation and execution. That's the cross. Hmm. And so I think it makes sense that that led me to a county jail. Did your depression instantly start to change? Did you start to feel something yeah, totally. Yeah, I was I was lit. I was excited. The, 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 especially the young Mexican guys with tattoos on their hands and their faces. They said the most pure, raw, unedited, insightful things. They probably saw me just giddy, and so they started coming up to me after after these group groups in the in the jail and being like, "Hey, um, I don't have anyone to, to visit me. Can you come visit me?" Um, there's, there's all sorts of shit going on in my head. I, I, I need someone to talk to. And I asked uh, Bob, who is, who is now my, my boss and my mentor, like, hey, can I, can I visit these guys? And he was like, yeah, I used to do evening one-on-ones a lot. I've got a family and kids now. And, and so go for it. And so I started stepping into these small lawyer visitation rooms and, and meeting with some of these guys and seeing men that on the surface look so different than me criminal records maybe there's there's been sexual offenses maybe there's been violent offenses maybe they've moved a lot of drugs uh across a small table in a small cinder block room just pour out their heart mm. and i was like man i was looking for our friend this real in college mm. it's like talking about you know ironic noir films and um uh doing anything but being emotionally or spiritually vulnerable with me i was so lonely in college these guys to just be so real and not pious. Um, I mean, there's always some people in, in jail that use a lot of God talk and pious talk, but um, in our our groups didn't reward that at all. So I think guys realized they didn't have to play that game to get some pastor's approval. Hmm. People could be real. The the left or the liberal, especially the Berkeley uh, 
it's it's very human rights centered. It's very a, you know what I'm saying. Like there's a yeah. very a big movement, but you're saying in the midst of this movement, you felt lonely. Do you see any of the human rights people going into prisons, or is it just this dark understanding of Jesus that will take you to the jail? Are there anybody else there with you trying to help these guys, or is it just? It's, it's a really good question. Um, I've, I've noticed over the years. I mean, we work with everybody. We need all hands on deck. And so I work with a lot of conservatives and I work with a lot of uh, really, really extreme uh, activists. And, I, and I, I've learned to love them both. When I came to Washington, I would have hated to be around conservatives. I was really trying to get rid of the and get away from my kind of Republican evangelical mm-hmm. upbringing. Um, but I, I found that liberals and activists were really great at seeing the problem of like in this case, mass incarceration mm-hmm. and then the corruption of the American uh, criminal justice system and really having a pro prisoner um, politic and, and, and worldview and understanding of systems of oppression that create um, racialized uh, and anti-poverty systems of human disposal. Hmm. So like I could say all that and folks from the left wing would, would be down with it. And they're the ones that become really great public defenders and start to change systems. And people in the ACLU, where I've been part of their meetings and looking at changing debtors' prison and sentencing laws in Washington. And yet, I've oftentimes found that it's normally conservatives, though, from Christian leanings. Even if it's a you know not not the flavor of Christianity that I believe. Yeah. Uh, normally, those types that go into the prisons in the jails. Mm. And spend time touching them, holding their hands, knowing their names, praying with them. Even if it's, like I'm saying, a brand of faith that I, it's not really what I'm down with, I found that there's a real strength there mm-hmm. to um, to religious folks that really, they don't get the whole system. They maybe even think that the prison is good. They, I mean, it's really weird. Like a lot of conservative religions, on one hand, will really say pro-war, you know, support the death penalty. But yet the other one's also going into the prison and, um, and taking care of folks. Or maybe I'm confronting it. Maybe it's certain people within uh, conservative, Amer- conservative Christian America that believe those things, but maybe the ones that go in and end up uh, befriending and, be- and joining in fellowship with the accused and the condemned, hmm. uh, they discover a kinship there that I think is changing um, a lot of conservative folks. Yeah, a lot of conservatives probably love the raw, the realness that they don't get in their Baptist pews. I don't know if right now is the, the best time, but I'm, most recently I'm trying to, I'm looking into a, something called One Parish, One Prisoner and connecting churches with just one person coming home from prison. And I think not only is that every, does that, would that provide so much of the community and the resources and the support that one prisoner would need? But I think that relationship and coming around one person leaving the underground of America Mm. would change every church. Chris, this is Matt. I haven't spoken yet. Just loving listening to what you have to say. Uh, That kind of puts the, the burden of, of rehabilitation on the church a little bit more than on the establishment. I feel like, I feel like, like you said, liberals kind of press the establishment um, and and conservatives um, tend to go in and be the church to people, and that would really put people's money where their mouth is, uh, as far as rehabilitation goes. If you could, and we were talking about this with refugees, if if every church in America said, "Yeah, we'll take seven, <laughs> you know, like we'll house them," like would it really be that big of an issue? Uh, what are your ideas for a better prison system? I, everybody has a ton of uh, opinions on this, but like one that might help, um, maybe more holistic approach that you might have that might help rehabilitate people instead of kind of reinforce the negative stigma and the, and the cycle. Yeah, that's, that's great. There's, there's a number of questions there. I'll, I'll try to tease them out. Um, what, what are some alternatives for, for a better system? We're, we're at a really exciting time right now. There is, um, there's been a lot of really marginal, uh, alternatives to the current criminal justice system, such such as um, a lot of them come under the banner uh, restorative justice. Hmm. Have you guys heard about restorative justice? No. All right. So this has been a lot of marginal practices, and academics talk about it. But now it's it's really gaining momentum. There's a really multidisciplinary um, movement building in America that is aware that mass incarceration is one of the biggest problems of our time. 
other than uh, climate change. And, um, and there's, there's, there's a lot of traction here. So restorative justice is a whole different philosophy of what justice is, as opposed to what we have now, which is retributive justice. I don't, I don't have like the main bullet points in front of me, but, but essentially re- retributive justice says what's, what was the crime? What was the law that was broken? Were they guilty or innocent? And then how do we, how do we sentence them? Punish them. Yeah. Penal atonement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And restorative justice says who, who was, who was affected by this? Yeah. Now what law was broken? So in the, in the current penal system, the victims are really not taken seriously. I mean, they're used as props for a tough on crime, but they're really not part of the process. Um, and it's more seen as what law is broken versus restorative justice says who is harmed and what needs to happen to make this right. Hmm. Um, and it's much more vulnerable. It's much more community oriented. And it actually fosters repentance because yeah. people see what they did. Um, few people feel bad for breaking a law. And I think anyone who's sped knows exactly what I'm talking about right. uh, on the freeway. Like, we just don't want to get caught. But no one feels a true sense of repentance. Like, oh, damn, I went five miles over. I really want to check my heart today. Yeah. <laughs> check my heart. <laughs> How's your walk, bro? <laughs> if anyone hammered on you for driving over the speed limit and started telling you how bad you were, you'd really harden your heart. You'd get cynical. It sounds like the current system is a very lose-lose situation. Like, even if you win your case or whatever, you still lose because at, they're out of your sight. You're out of their sight. Nobody, you know, it's just maybe you get some money or something, but yet you're still harboring this anger and pain the rest of your life, and they are rotting in prison, regretting that mistake over and over and over. And then if they do get out, chances are they're so warped uh, it can happen again. I mean, it just yeah. sounds like it just sounds like yeah, you're right. We do need a better system in place to actually help people. You know, if someone commits a crime against you and you don't have to do anything but sit in a wall all day long and think about it, I mean, who wins? I mean, who really wins in that scenario? I mean, so so the restorative justice, like what what do they propose people do? There, there's different models. There's like the civil model. Um, uh, there's you know lower level juvenile and misdemeanor courts, felony courts. There's um, so it's it's not a simple matter, but it's a different it's a different philosophy. And when you get social workers, therapists, mediators coming together with victims and offenders and judges and looking at how how is this made right, it could be years of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. that's actually in the long run cheaper than housing someone in the highest paid daycare facility that the world has ever known. Right. Um, the, 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 the prison system is so expensive. It's roughly the same amount to send someone, just warehouse them in prison in a high security facility than to send them to college for a year. And so wow. to, to actually bring together some professionals and looking at how this could be made right in the community. A lot of the uh, restorative justice literature talks about where uh, these are indigenous values indigenous models and, uh, and i think that's really good and interesting to learn but just as a christian i'm like this is this is christian shit right here we're talking repentance that's reconciliation the, that's the gospel yeah and so <laughs> I, I think um uh looking at our criminal justice system people are at least uh, hopefully some christians are rediscovering what we believe like oh yeah we're part of a really western academic punitive pagan system right and to get right. back to a thing of, of reconciliation and mercy and restoration and transformation of communities and people. Oh, this is the stuff I heard about in Sunday school growing up. Could this be possible? What about, I mean, we could talk about probably forever, um, how much the private prison system is based on profit and how much corporations kind of influence policy when it comes to that. And you're talking about this, uh, Chris, this restorative justice as opposed to, uh, what was the other one? Retributive or, uh, yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Now, how do you see that playing into the fact that um, that, that prisons aren't gonna aren't gonna just close down? You know, like how how are these big corporations going to? Because um, you kind of got to move them slowly in a direction of of growth. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, other than his presidential campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders as a senator put forward um, a pretty important bill. I haven't been tracking in the last few weeks uh, on the Senate floor. Uh, just making it just as 
the public, we just saying um, no one can make money off the prison system, basically making prison profiteering illegal. Yeah. Uh, that's, and a, so that's like aggressively going to be uh, fought by prison lobbyists, obviously, right? Of course it will. But I mean, I, I mean that we had civil rights legislation change just a few decades ago. And when right. people realize there's a big enough problem, there's enough people um, that, that rise up, um, we, we, we can change these laws. And a lot of them are changing on county and state levels. And there's a quiet groundswell growing. Um, but yeah, we can say just like law enforcement, we don't want privatized law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now police, it, it, as much problem as corruption as there is, they're still, you know, civic institutions. Right. Uh, they're not, you know, cops.com. I'm sure some corporations would love to build that, but we're not there yet. And we, we can decide to right. bring our justice system back into the public well, the realm. Corporations have built that with uh, defense contractors, uh, private yeah. mercenary folk that the uh, government can hire and pay them tons of money, pay them billions a year to go fight wars. So, I mean, that, that's the, that's the capitalist system where, there, where there's a market, there will be, you know, where there's profit to be made, there will be people who will, who will create this systemic injustice. And yeah, I'm just wondering, like, does it take every single person in America saying, no more, like we're done. It does, is that is that what has to happen for something dramatic to change, or is it sort of a a process over time where society kind of morphs slowly towards something more? Restorative? I see this. I see the slow morph happening. Okay. Um, just like, um, I mean, there'll be there'll be the slow morph will hit big cases, just like our society's attitude towards gays and lesbians mm-hmm. having a slow morph over the decades, and then it's gonna, you know some precedent setting case is going to become huge and scandalous and divisive. And there's going to be a, you know, a prop, whatever happening in this state. And so it'll be all over the news, but we only got to that, that fighting grounds because there's such a cultural shift happening already. And I think Mm. that's going to happen in our, our understanding of um, how we deal with wrongdoing in our society. Yeah. A couple things that we talk about a lot on this uh, podcast is kind of like your trolls, your inner trolls, your outer trolls, basically your inner demons. Mm-hmm. Um, people who kind of project their negativity onto you, but then when you believe that negativity yourself and how it transforms your own brain and makes you do or don't do things. Um, on Facebook the last couple of days, people are just so adamant that they know the solution, they know the problem whenever there's a crime. And it's like people are – it's like killing people because they want some sort of justice. They want some sort of answer. I think if people can see it, forgiveness is beautiful mercy is irresistibly beautiful and if we cage it and hide it um it becomes easy to scorn but when you when you show it to people it transforms rich and poor so uh, we're talking a lot of ideas i'm going to try to steer us to a story please do one of the i'm going to because it's a sensitive story i'm not going to use names with this one um one of the main guys that first called me a pastor in his gang networks a decade ago. He, he and I became really close, even though he was actively gangbanging. He invited me to gang meetings. Uh, when he went off to prison, for the next seven years, we wrote weekly letters. We got really close. It's a long story. Part of it is, 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 is in my book, Wanted. Um, but this person started to feel like they wanted to um, do what I do. They wanted to be a pastor. And maybe this is the same guy that called me to be a pastor. So maybe he was just projecting onto me not his inner troll, but his uh, inner calling. He, mm-hmm. Maybe he felt called. He put it on me, so I, I was doing it. But he said, I want to do that when I get out. And so I learned from the inside out through a close relationship with this guy, um, more than just generally being a chaplain to a lot of guys like an inch deep. I went like a mile deep with this guy. And he went a mile deep into my life. Long story short, I became like family, bringing his daughters in to visit him, getting special approvals. Uh, deciding not to go to seminary because I wanted to be out on his release date. He was released to, to come and live with my wife and I wow. uh, directly from solitary confinement um, and in years of absolute solitude and, and mental health struggles that everyone has to battle and being locked up and alone that long right into our home. You must have a strong she, wife. She's cool. She's a therapist. And so okay. Okay. Um, but we talked about it. It wasn't just an impulsive. Well, yeah, decision. no, I know. I'm just saying, you know, most women wouldn't be excited about that. Oh, she, yeah. I mean, she, I mean, she, 
she knew who she was dating when we were even uh, dating. She, <laughs> she would, I lived in our ministry building for years and I lived almost exclusively with guys who were getting out of gangs that I brought into the apartment with me. And so when she, when she was dating me and we're hanging out late night, I mean, she's always around guys getting out of gangs. So that was, I said, <laughs> we're going to continue. This is who I am. Um, so we, I don't have guys in and out of the house all the time now, but I said, I, I really feel like we should bring this guy Niener's home. And, um, so anyway, that's a, that's a longer story, but what I'm getting to is he's been out for almost two years and now he's married and has kids. Wow. He's covered up a lot of his gang tattoos. Um, and he's on staff with us at Tiranueva. Wow. Now we go and we speak in churches. Churches support us and they, you know, they oftentimes invite us to come and share with their congregations. And so I've got a, a Mexican former gang leader who spent seven years doing hard time in maximum security prisons in the pulpit with me. And we both, and we speak together and we invite people to come and join our support team because we support ourselves as ministries. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, as missionaries. Uh, my, my paycheck comes from families and, and individuals giving 20, 50, $80 a month. And it adds up to a paycheck. Um, so inviting people to join Niener's support team and support him like a, a missionary. Hmm. So as we do this, we get to know so many people in conservative churches. This is where I'm going. They've never seen, I had a relationship with someone in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Much less uh, a Mexican gang member with tattoos on his face and neck and hands. And oftentimes they fall in love with this dude. They're over me as soon as I step away from the pulpit and they're just in love with this guy. They want to connect with him when they come visit our ministry. I'm pretty boring. Um, and, and he had a lot of negative experiences with white people growing up and growing up in a racist white agricultural valley that uh, hated the kind of Mexican scum that they wished stayed out in the fields and the camps picking the strawberries, but they didn't like all their kids showing in the elementary schools and they didn't know how to pronounce their names. And so my friend grew up in, with a lot of racism and he says, I, he says I had, uh, I don't count, but generally he effing hated white people and still does in many ways. Um, but all these white people are starting to care for him and he's starting to reach out to them, invite them to come work on this garden that he's uh, got going with, with us at the ministry at Tiranueva. And he's starting to lean on them as like aunts and uncles and, and surrogate family. And not only is that changing his heart, a relationship, the kind of people he used to hate racist white people, but it turns out that a lot of these folks, as he's getting to know them, they're Trump supporters. This is freaking him out. This is just two weeks ago we're talking about. He's like, man, you know, this lady, she comes to work in the guard. She's down for us. She's <laughs> the homies. She, I've got her down here in the basement. Different people writing writing letters. They Trump support. They, they support Trump, bro. I'm like, oh, no. It'd be like hearing that a homie we really love went back to dealing meth. We're like, no, really? Gosh. <laughs> the, the capacity for darkness and good people is so disappointing. Yeah. Um, and the p capacity for good and quote unquote bad people, likewise. Right, but the story keeps going, and I want to be careful. And this is this is not my story to tell. But some of these people that he has these relationships with, they start to open up and let them know, hey, I've been I've been hurt by a Mexican man in the past. Hmm. I've been really hurt. And I'm not going to say what that hurt is, but pretty severe kind of hurt. And for them to say, this has been a really healing experience for me to know you to this Mexican-American man who, who has changed in a very spiritual and social and beautiful way. And through their relationship, um, I see repentance on both sides. I see a, a larger mind is what repentance means in Greek, uh, metanoia. We know the word meta is millennials. Mm -hmm. Metanoia, a larger mind. Mm -hmm. That this larger mind is happening not only in someone released from prison that has renounced violence, what closes the mind? Like what? That's what I see a lot is just that people accepted Christ and then it just like narrowed their vision. But you're speaking of people who have kind of opening their whole entire heart and mind and eyes to see everybody. Um, I, I just wonder why there's such a there's such a black or white when it comes to churches who are like, nope. And then churches like everyone's welcome at the table. You know, can you speak to that at all? Like. That seems to be something I see everywhere, you know? I mean, St. Paul says in Romans 2, <laughs> do you not know that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance? Hmm. 
So Paul, who was a super violent, hateful zealot, I mean, he was a fundamentalist to the max. I mean, he was some some mix between like Jerry Falwell and ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, was was this guy Saul of Tarsus, and that he had a mystical experience with with the tortured and executed man Jesus. You know, he has this vision of a crucified Christ, but we say crucified Christ and. You know that uh, that sounds so religious. Crucified, who's executed and, and, and bleeding? A vision of a, a suffering human being appears to him on the road while he's about to go do something really violent. And the kindness of this voice of a bleeding God says, "Saul, Saul," and kindly approaches him spiritually. And then he's brought into a, a church of people in Damascus, and they're scared of him at first. But this same divine spiritual voice persona of an executed man. Jesus is speaking to this church, this little congregation of scared people in Damascus to, to bring in their enemy, Saul. And they take care of him. They call him brother. And this kindness foments a kind of repentance, transformation. And so I think the, the man who wrote those words in Romans is what I'm saying, is the, is the man that was violent and, and changed. He experienced mm. this kindness. Those letters come from somewhere. And... I think that's that's the story in the gospel, and I think a lot of us don't get that full story growing up in yeah. churches. We no, get a we lot don't. of pharisaical kind of stuff. I mean, you know, like Jesus' enemies, basically. I, I might go on a tangent here. I want to just because the, the news, uh, the shooting in Orlando and everybody's up on Facebook and, and Twitter with a with a claim to or a judgment or an analysis of who's sure. to blame, what we need to do and how we need to do it. And everybody kind of jumps to this. Um, it almost seems like they skip the kindness part and, and maybe the empathy part of. Maybe there's a period where we just sit and mourn with those people who have suffered and with those people who are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. And and maybe after mourning, we celebrate the heroes who were there, who, who rushed into the fight, with the heroes who put themselves at harm's way. Like, this is empathy. This is kindness. This is listening. And that's the stuff, I think, that leads to a better analysis or a better judgment of or a better path forward. And, yeah. you know, people are talking about violence and, and how we need to eradicate radical Islam. And it just seems like to me, the more bombs we drop, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, they just keep popping up. And I saw this, uh, this video on Facebook of, uh, a woman who was, uh, an ex CIA agent who was undercover for like 10 years. And she's talking about how the story we tell ourselves about, uh, about what, what we're doing in the Middle East is that we're protecting freedom, we're protecting our families. And that's a story that's kind of sold to us by an, an establishment that stands to gain. Uh, likewise, if you ask someone on the street in, in you know, Iraq, um, why is it that, uh, that, um, that America is dropping bombs? They would say because they're trying to destroy Islam. Uh, and so that's a story that they tell themselves. And really, ultimately, people on either side of the issue just want their kids to live in peace. And they tell themselves a story about how the other is evil and we mm-hmm. are, you know, and we are good. And wouldn't it make sense to in, just to stop and listen? Like, that's that's kind of what you're talking about here with kindness. Uh and what you're talking about with your friend and these uh, Trump supporters is that there's a human connection there that there's a listening and a sharing that isn't just an eye for an eye thing. It's, it's as difficult as love your enemy. (laughs) It really is. But it seems like that is the hope. Like that's where the good stuff is and that's where we can heal and change. And it's just so hard with, with, with the level of fear and anxiety to get to that place of kindness and empathy. Like, what do you, I don't even know. What do you say to that? (laughs) I don't know. I'm just ranting, but yeah, I, I, we don't, we don't know our enemies normally. Hmm. Um, and so I, 
I can't speak to global issues with the time we have left, but I um, but I can say that uh, the the work that I'm I'm engaged in most now is not just being inside the county jail and writing letters with guys in prisons, but trying to help them connect with those on the outs and uh, across racial and, and and political and cultural lines, and um, it's hard work because those are thick walls. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers, but when people get to know one another, um, the surprise is always fun, and the, the the fruit of repentance is is, is always new, and, and 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 it gives me a lot of hope that when people see one another, same way that I found so much kinship after being lonely and depressed in in college and finding kinship with a young Mexican angry gang members, who are also so delightful and funny and and, and hopeful and, hmm. and revolutionary minded. They became my buddies. That's just something that I, I feel like this most interesting part is how here are these free people walking around and they're depressed. Most people are on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. We all sort of kind of go about our lives and sort of ignore each other. But you walk into this prison and instantly, not only are you bonding, but it's like every single second is like the most intense second you've ever had, the way you describe it. <laughs> It is like everyone turns on and, and we're all zombies outside, but inside these walls, everyone's awake and alive, and, and, yeah. and it's magical. And uh, I'm glad you got that. Like, I really like how you said that. I'm going to borrow that. I mean, given um, that book is a condensation of kind of the greatest hits memories across several years, there's there's plenty of days where things are a little chill sure. or chill or right. non-eventful. But generally, I'd say that's true. That when I go into a lockdown space with an open heart, not to just kind of fulfill a, a just a social work function, although those are necessary. To go in with a spiritual purpose with people in a lockdown facility, for me, yes, has been the most alive experience. They should just start shuffling buses, church buses, to prisons and just start having church at the prison. <laughs> Because well, it would, it would everyone would have a better experience. Most, much of the Bible is written in captivity, and so that's where it belongs. Right. Crazy. Crazy. Right. No, you're, you're dead on. And, and do you have to see yourself as a prisoner? Like you're no better than anybody else. Yeah. Well, well what I was, was, was getting at a second ago was when I found that connection with guys and gangs, it's, it's what Father Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries um, in Los Angeles calls kinship. Um, which I think is the right word. It's not just brotherhood. It's not just we're all the same because that's that's too cheap. That's whitewashing it. But he calls it kinship, a discovery that we belong to one another. I've heard that that the term the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom because it it translates better. We don't understand kingdoms, but the truth. Yeah, of the, the we, we, yeah. I think it, it can be tender as far as like we 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 recognize a, a, a kinship a, a friendship we like one another but i think kinship also has a, a more convicting side of it as well it's appropriate that we're talking about our wars that we can look at violent offenders and say well maybe individually we're not all violent here uh, those of us who are not incarcerated but we are a very violent country hmm. and what we're doing in international relations is no different than gangbanging Right. Our gang is just a million times bigger. Right. Hmm. Um, we got bigger guns. We're taking over territories for resources. And we've got our colors. We've got our, our red rags and our blue rags. Mm -hmm. um, and the, um, the, that sense of weight, we're no different than you. And gangs, the same way that on an individual level, I can see myself in a gang member. I think for our nation to see in gangs that kinship that, oh, we're, we're also a gangster nation. Wow. I've never... I've never thought of that. <laughs> That's insane. Just mind mm. blown. Yeah, I've never. I'm going to think about that for a long time. I think. Yeah, America's against your nation. Like the the fact, it's so easy to whack them all. The, the small, the small, tiny versions of it. Where we've got we've got huge uh, gang banging attitudes and policies that have total disregard for international law. We'll do what we want. We're all about talking shit on the media and saying to other countries what we're the best. Um, and it's just devastating neighborhoods doing drive-by shootings with drones. I mean, we're a gangster nation. Jeez. So to see, that, to see that kinship on a larger level, I think we can only get there if we begin on an individual level. Is that in your book? You need to write a book about that. <laughs> That's not in a yeah. book already. You need to do a whole book on that. <laughs>
daylight On my knees in the night Saying prayers in the streetlight How America is a gangster. <laughs> yeah, we are a gangster's paradise. Oh, wow. Man. Gangs are brutal to one another. Yeah. So g- gangs have such a severe law that if anyone's out of line within the gang, they're cut off right. in a really sudden and brutal and unfair way. And so it makes sense. I'm also seeing the parallel right now that as we're violent internationally, we're also severe the way within our um, nation. Gangs are the same way. Right. Gangs are violent externally, and yet they're so severe and legalistic with right. one another. Wow. Um, we're really a gangster nation. Nobody can delineate. Yeah, nobody can delineate from the from the rhetoric that we are. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. I've had these conversations around campfires with friends who are in sort of the conservative camp, and they go, they go, Nate. Like, I can't believe how much I disagree with you. And I go, look, I can't prove this on paper because I'm not in the CIA or whatever. But America goes wherever it wants. I mean, could you imagine a German Air Force base in Tennessee? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Could you imagine what the Tennesseans here where I live would do? They would freak out. But yet we have them. There'd be radical Christian terrorists trying to blow it up. Oh. I know we only have a minute or so left, but I mean, to try to bring yeah, yeah. this back to the the question at the beginning, we're talking about our worst mistakes. Right. We're talking about repentance. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a recognition of one's wrong. And I need, I, I just, what excites me is connecting a discourse of repentance with our kind of like awakening generation for how messed up we are politically as a nation. That we could yeah. get off on two hours of, like you're saying, like a, a bonfire conversation and talking about all the gnarly things about American uh, American Empire, right? And but I think the way that we can take that deeper, instead of either being resistant in a conservative mind or just kind of like angry and increasingly cynical in a liberal mindset, is that we meet in repentance so that we can learn from prisoners that may, they're whatever they, they they dealt drugs for a while or they they hit their girlfriend. These are wrongs that they're having to face. And if we're inviting them to be in repentance and transformation, I think we can learn from prisoners um, that that's what we need as a nation. We need to learn how to name our wrongs and ask forgiveness hmm. and, and, and mend our ways. And so I think prisoners really are the microcosm. They're the caricature of all of us. And if we can learn how to see ourselves in them and be in brotherhood and friendship and sisterhood with them, I think that can help teach us how to repent as, as a people. Damn, that is so, that is good. That is so good. Like water in the desert are your words, Chris. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. Well, question. So this if it's, is talking with you guys. You're asking great questions. We want to thank you for your time. I have to cut you off because I know that you have a day to get to. And if I don't, Nate will continue asking you questions uh, till the cows come home. So. Uh, we just want to thank you for being on the podcast, man. You've been, you've been. I'm just going to be thinking about a lot of stuff you said for a long time. So thanks for dropping some uh, some bombs in my brain. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for getting getting me thinking. I should uh, I should write about some of the things you've gotten me thinking about this morning. Well, you want to pitch your book one more time too? My my book is called Wanted: a Spiritual Pursuit Through Jail Among Outlaws Across Borders. And it came out just this last year on Harper One, and it's available in uh bookstores local bookstores barnes and noble amazon wherever you get books um yeah i'd be honored if you went deeper into some of these stories with me i will definitely be reading it thank you chris so much we appreciate your time and uh hopefully we'll uh talk to you soon no i bless you guys this has been great take care of it thanks so much peace
And just a reminder, if you like this podcast, the content, the guests we have on, would you consider supporting us once a month with a small, easy payment on Patreon? Uh, We produce four episodes a month, even a dollar towards that or 25 cents an episode really helps build and support this podcast. Uh, Go to patreon.com slash don't feed the trolls. Special thanks to this week's new patrons. Nate, would you like to try attempt to read some names poorly? (laughs) Welcome this week's patrons. You know me. I was that kid in elementary school who loved to read out loud. Um, Tyler May, Matt Bridal, Amanda Stroud Emery, Patrick Ray. Thanks to these patrons for uh, being a part of our team. Um, Enjoy some bonus content um, and uh, shoot us a message on there. Patreon.com slash don't feed the trolls. And if you want to email us, let us know your thoughts. I'm sure this episode is stirring your brain right now because it is mine. Don't email the trolls at gmail.com and uh, let us know what you think. And hit us up on social media too. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Send us, uh, you can fill out a contact form at trollspodcast.com. And we will see you next week. Awesome.